The drought in Somalia immediately means that there's uh, scarcity of food at the household level. Somalia is experiencing its worst drought in decades. One aid group says nearly two million children are suffering from malnutrition and that many will die. It's Monday, December 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, a Massachusetts congressman is just back from Ukraine. What he says leaders in the war-torn country are looking for from the U.S. What they needed a few months ago is not what they need today. Today, they're focused on getting missile defenses, air defenses. I'll have a conversation with Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The families of loved ones killed in the 1988 bombing over Lockerbie have been waiting more than 30 years for this moment. Abu Aguila Muhammad Masoud Karir al-Marimi, the Libyan national accused of making the bomb that exploded on Pan Am Flight 103, has made his first court appearance in Washington, D.C. Victoria Cummick's husband, John, was among the 259 passengers and crew members on the London to New York flight when the 747 exploded 38 minutes into the flight over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing everyone on board and 11 people on the ground. Cummock, who is founder and CEO of the Lockerbie Legacy Foundation, says justice needs to be swift. The victims' families are keenly aware that after 34 years, informants and witnesses die, memories fade, and evidence can deteriorate or disappear. The Pan Am bombing remains the deadliest terrorist attack in the history of the United Kingdom. Congress is up against another deadline to avert a government shutdown. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports lawmakers may be forced to put off a final agreement and rely instead on a stopgap measure that keeps federal agencies operating at their current spending levels. Republicans and Democrats have until Friday to strike a compromise on a full-year spending bill or pass a short-term measure delaying the deadline to avoid a partial government shutdown. While there is an agreement on about $850 billion in defense spending, both sides have acknowledged that there's still a lot of negotiating to do over non-defense spending. Talks are expected to continue this week. With Republicans set to regain control of the House in January, Democrats see the spending bill as their last chance to enact the remaining items on President Biden's domestic agenda. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Two of the nation's big pharmacy chains have agreed to pay more than $10 billion to settle lawsuits linked to opioid case, or rather sales. The deal with CVS and Walgreens comes on the heels of another major agreement with Walmart. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. This deal requires CVS to pay roughly $5 billion, with Walgreens paying $5.7 billion. Walmart, which also operates a national pharmacy chain, agreed last month to pay $3.1 billion. Individual states still have to approve these settlements. Most are expected to sign on. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro said in the statement, the money will help people suffering from opioid addiction get the treatment they need. In all, drug companies that made and sold highly addictive pain pills have agreed to pay more than $54 billion. Most, including the three pharmacy chains, admit no wrongdoing. Since it began in the late 90s, the opioid epidemic has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. Brian Mann, NPR News. 
This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA marked its biggest expansion in decades this morning with the opening of five new Green Line stations in Somerville and Medford. The first trolley rolled out of Tuff Station before 5 a.m. this morning as cheering crowds looked on. As WBUR's Laura Craigle reports, some Massachusetts leaders are already looking ahead to future projects. At a ribbon-cutting ceremony, Senator Elizabeth Warren thanked local, state, and federal partners for making the Medford extension a reality, despite years of delays and funding challenges. She also urged state and local officials to apply for newly available federal funding to help the T continue to grow. Extending the Green Line is great, but we need a lot more extensions, and we can't wait two decades for every single one of them to come online. Warren said expanding public transit is key to housing, environmental, and racial justice around the region. She specifically called for doubling commuter rail locations, building out bike lanes, and launching east-west rail service. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. A Pittsfield man has been sentenced to prison for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 38-year-old Troy Sargent was sentenced to 14 months in prison today on charges of assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers during the breach that preceded the certification of votes from the 2020 election. Sargent pleaded guilty to the charges back in June. He was also ordered to complete two years of supervised release and pay $500 restitution. Worcester's St. Vincent Hospital has agreed to pay more than $1.7 million in fines for overbilling Medicare. St. Vincent Hospital admits it increased charges for all inpatient services by a total of 48% between 2018 and 2019 and charged Medicare whether it was appropriate or not. The hospital reached a settlement with the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts last week. More people are expected to travel during the holidays this year than last. That's the estimate out today from AAA Northeast. It predicts that nearly a third of Massachusetts residents will be off to grandma's or elsewhere most will drive. In sports, the Patriots take on the Cardinals tonight out in Arizona. Celtics are in L.A. to take on the Clippers. Late start in that game. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The low's around 25 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny, tad warmer on Thursday, a high of 43 degrees. Cloudy with rain likely on Friday, a high of 47. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The afternoon of December 21st, 1988, Reports were just emerging of widespread wreckage raining down on the town of Lockerbie, Scotland, fallout from the midair explosion of a passenger plane. We heard a tremendous shudder on the ground as though it was an earthquake. Then this enormous ball of flame. It was just an inferno, and they could have known nothing about it. The whole sky lit up and it was virtually raining fire, liquid fire. Investigators later determined a bomb had blown Pan Am Flight 103 out of the sky, killing 270 people, including 190 Americans. The magnitude of that crash never really hit home to most people in the United States. I don't know that it hit home to most people in the FBI. 
Retired FBI Special Agent Dick Marquise initially led the U.S. investigation. He's talking there in an FBI documentary. And today, with the alleged bomb maker behind the attack appearing before a U.S. court, we wanted to get his perspective on this moment. Dick Marquise, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Good afternoon. So let's start with what you said there in that documentary about the magnitude of this crash. The crime scene was huge, 845 square miles. So can you tell us about the scope of the investigation that followed? Well, clearly this uh, crime occurred over Scotland and it was 4,000 miles from the uh, shores of the United States. So it really, as I said in that piece, I'm not sure that people in the United States focused on it the way we did after 9-11. Uh, This investigation, 1988 to 1991, uh, encompassed uh, dozens of countries, uh, hundreds of police officers, intelligence agents, uh, the collection of the evidence over 845 square miles. It was the most significant crime scene and investigation in history up to that point. You also said that you weren't sure that the magnitude of the crash hit home even to most people in the FBI. What did you mean by that? Well, the fact that it took place literally 4,000 miles from our shores, even though it was an American carrier, 190 Americans, uh, the United States was the target of that attack. The fact that it occurred uh, five time zones away from us at night, uh, it didn't hit home the way uh, Oklahoma City, the way that September 11th, and the various terrorist crimes that we've seen in the United States since 1988. And I'm not sure because the media coverage disappeared, mostly in the United States, very quickly. And it fell out of the consciousness of most people because it also took um, approximately three years before we had publicly identified uh, who was responsible for this. Did the Lockerbie bombing and the investigation that followed change the way that terrorism was investigated and crimes of this sort were prosecuted? Well, it, it did. Certainly the, the laws that, uh, that prohibited this type of activity were not even passed in the United States until 1986. That made it a law for, uh, made it against the law for someone abroad to kill an American during the course of a terrorist attack. Prior to that, someone could do it with impunity, get away with it, and they couldn't be prosecuted. But this case brought uh, police and intelligence agencies together in an unprecedented way to collect information, share information, and uh, eventually bring people to justice. It first the time in a court sitting in the Netherlands, a Scottish court sitting in the Netherlands in uh, 2000. As we mentioned, you initially led the U.S. investigation. So I'm curious, um, all these years later, do you still have personal connections with families of the victims? And I wonder, are there any promises you made to them back then that you still remember today? The only promise I ever made in one uh, public comments that I made to them was that we were going to do everything we could to bring justice People have asked about closure. I don't know that you ever get closure from something like this, but I promised that we would do everything we could to bring those responsible to justice. And I was very disappointed uh, years ago when all we brought to court the first time were two people. And I'm hoping that uh, with Mr. Massoud coming into the United States, that he will provide that additional data, additional information that will allow investigators to focus in on other people who may still be alive that were responsible for this attack. 
Are you still in touch with any families of the victims that you met back then? I am. I, uh, I, 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 every year I go to Arlington. I'll be going again next week uh, on December 21st at 1.30, Arlington Cemetery. There's an annual commemorative uh, event that I have attended most years uh, since that memorial was erected in the mid-1990s. I still stay in touch with some of those folks. We've got about a minute left with you, and I'd like to ask you personally, what does this day mean to you after nearly 34 years to see one of the chief suspects of this bombing in court in the U.S.? I I think it's significant, and and not just so, it's not for me, it's for those people who lost loved ones on that airplane. It's for Americans to finally see somebody in a U.S. court that we believe was responsible for killing their loved one. And it is a, it's a good feeling for that. And I hope that uh, these families can walk away uh, getting additional information that will allow them, and you never put it behind you, but allow them to maybe sleep better at night. That's retired FBI Special Agent Dick Marquise, who led the American investigation into the 1988 Pan Am Flight 103 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Somalia is experiencing its worst drought in decades. The UN warns that in the coming months, nearly half the country could be in a critical food crisis with famine conditions in parts of Somalia. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Mogadishu. And Jason, tell us about what you've seen. How bad is the food situation right now? The food situation is pretty bad here. Technically, under the UN's guidance and the way that they categorize different types of food crises. It has not yet reached a famine state, but there are a lot of people without food. There are millions of people without food. And the concern is what's going to happen in the coming year. Already, Somalia has had four rainy seasons in a row that have failed. And aid groups are really worried about what's going to happen if the rainfall levels don't increase at some point this coming year in 2023. Recently, they've had hundreds of thousands of people whose crops have failed, whose livestock have died. And these people have left their rural homes and they've moved to these IDP camps, these internally displaced persons camps around Mogadishu, uh, around other cities and in larger towns, because these are the only places that they can currently get access to international food supplies from, from aid groups. And we are seeing children who are severely malnourished right now, even though they are not yet at this you know, so-called famine state. And we are seeing some kids who are dying due to this crisis. I know you've been out to meet some of them. Let's listen to your reporting. At the Benadir Hospital in Mogadishu, two-year-old Dikle Ibrahim has gotten so weak from malnutrition that he no longer even has the strength to swallow. His shoulders and ribcage protrude against his skin. His eyes are sunk deep into their sockets. Prolonged starvation, then he lost his muscles, his fats. So he, ca- he cannot uh, swallow properly. That's Dr. Mohamed Yassin Hiri, one of the physicians on the malnutrition intensive care unit at the hospital. His age is two years old, and his weight is 5.4. 5.4 kilograms, or just under 12 pounds. Dr. Hiri says Dikle should weigh at least twice that amount. His mother, Moral, sits beside him on the bed and fans her son with her shawl. 
Moral says Declay came down with diarrhea nearly a month ago and then progressively grew thinner and thinner. Finally, she made the 60-mile journey from her village to the capital, Mogadishu, she says, to seek help. Dr. Hiri says more and more cases like Declay are showing up at this hospital. For the last six months, the, the situation has been dramatically increased. The cases were, we admitted more cases. Now, but this year, the cases has been increased. So long as the children don't have other complications, like for instance cholera or measles, Dr. Hiri says the malnourished kids respond well to treatment. In addition to the inpatient ICU beds at Banadir Hospital, many more children are treated at an outpatient nutrition clinic. The clinic provides children with a high-calorie peanut paste supplement called Plumpy Nut, which can help them regain weight quickly. As families struggle to afford food, they often feed their children less or give them meals that are little more than a watery stew. The drought in Somalia immediately means that there's uh, scarcity of food at the household level. Victor Chinyama, a spokesperson for UNICEF in Mogadishu, says the ongoing drought in Somalia has led to severe shortages of food across the country, and it's expected to get worse in the coming months. In fact, at the moment, we're looking at maybe one pointed million children suffering from acute malnutrition and about half a million of these are in danger of dying because they have uh, a more severe form of malnutrition called wasting. Adding to the food crisis in Somalia, the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab is blocking international relief efforts in areas it controls. The recent crop failures, combined with battles between the government and al-Shabaab, have forced hundreds of thousands of Somalis to seek food and basic shelter in internally displaced persons camps. Chinyama says Somalia also appears to be getting battered by climate change, which is making these droughts more frequent. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And we'll have more of Jason's reporting from Somalia later this week. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 33 degrees in Boston at 419. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear about the psychological repercussions intelligence officers experience after being exposed to violent and traumatizing events. That's up next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. And the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up 1.5%, closing at 34,005. The S&P 500 up 1 and 4 tenths of a percent to close at 3991. And NASDAQ was up 1 and a quarter percent at 11,144. In business news, gasoline prices are falling across the country, but the relief has been muted here in Massachusetts. AAA survey shows 34 states have gas prices lower than this time last year, but Massachusetts is not one of them. 
The average statewide price in Massachusetts fell 12 cents in the past week to $3.54 a gallon. That's still 14 cents a gallon higher than it was this time last year. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs around 37, partly sunny. Tad warmer on Thursday, a high of 43. Cloudy with rain likely on Friday, a high 47 degrees. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One night years ago, Heather Williams was out at a restaurant with friends. We were actually getting seated at a table to sit down for dinner, probably with about seven or eight of my friends. She says she doesn't remember quite why, but... And I need to warn, what is coming is graphic. For some reason in the conversation, I brought up the fact that suicide bombers, when they use a suicide vest, um, it tends to separate the head from the body and the head is still intact. Williams worked in the U.S. intelligence community. She had deployed overseas more than once. She says for her and her work friends, the decapitation detail was a fact, something they had all seen, either in videos or in person. But at this dinner, she was with her non-work friends. I definitely remember suddenly hearing that there was no other sounds. <laughs> you know, I had stopped the buzz of conversation and everyone was looking at me awkwardly. Williams wrote about this awkward dinner and the research she has done since leaving U.S. intelligence in Politico. And when I called to ask about it, she told me the violence of her line of work can cause trauma Trauma that she hadn't fully recognized until she left the government. There's a variety of uh, techniques that I think everybody uses when dealing with these sorts of situations. You know, gallows humor, for example, you know, treating things very casually. And I was quite young when I, I first deployed. I deployed a few times over a decade. Uh, so I reflect back on that and... Uh, even the casual nature that I approached the problem now doesn't sit sit well with me. Um, and, and I think there's a really important point here, um, a general point, which is the role of empathy in intelligence work. And I don't think that empathy is often recognized for the professional asset that it is. You're trying to understand what motivates them, what makes them tick, how they think. That's right. And empathy brings a lot of complexity and layers to that understanding. And so people can deal with the emotional stress of this job by putting in place mental buffers, by not feeling, by dehumanizing your targets. That's a good coping skill, um, but it actually opens us up to cognitive biases and it makes for less effective analysis. Hmm. 
To what extent does this stuff, by which I mean mental health, how to cope with trauma, um, how often does this get talked about in the intelligence community? Very rarely. So the intelligence community does not have an environment of mental wellness. I think that's fair to say. There have been some improvements. So over the last decade, the intelligence community has been changing the way that it asks people about mental health when they're pursuing their security clearances, for example, on the paperwork. Um, the CIA just appointed uh, a chief well-being officer uh, two weeks ago. And, and there are employee services, and I think those are recognized as valuable if there's direct trauma. Let's say a coworker commits suicide, you know, that, that there is a recognition that we need to bring in uh, potential assistance there. But mm -hmm. the risks that come from, you know, 20 years or more of just dealing with very distasteful, violent, you know, negative content, and particularly today where you are more often seeing that content, be it images or video, um, I think there's very poor understanding of the risks that that introduces for traumatic stress. Hmm. I mentioned that you've now left government work. You work at the RAND Corporation, and you all have studied the effects of trauma on people who do intelligence work. What What have you heard as you interview people? Right. I think one thing that is very clear to me from that work is just how much people want this issue to be talked about more. Um, also, that people don't actually have the right vocabulary sometimes to describe what they're feeling and recognize what they are feeling as traumatic stress that they have been exposed to. And the consequences uh, vary, but there are consequences for individuals, but there are also consequences for the institution. So retention is a really big one. Um, I've heard many stories of individuals who needed to move inside of their jobs or, or leave the community because they weren't being appropriately supported. Um, and, and retention, I think, is a really important issue for the intelligence community because of how much it costs to hire and to train intelligence professionals and the fact that there's a there's no machine like Men in Black with the flashy red light that, you know, deletes all the secrets from your brain when you leave. So you want to minimize how many people have worked in this community. That's interesting. So it's obviously in the interest of, of any any employer to retain to retain good staffers, but in this case, um, there's a there's security risk as well when you lose people. That's right. Oh. It's higher stakes. Are you getting much reaction to this piece? There has been an incredible reaction to this piece. Um, so many of my former colleagues have approached me to say thank you. Um, to, to say how much they appreciate uh, attention being brought to this issue. And um, so many uh, strangers have come to me, but, but members of the intelligence community. And I've heard lots of stories of people who, even if the traumatic exposures that they had didn't have direct negative consequences on um their relationships or their jobs, just them recognizing that this is a problem and, and more needs to be done, I think, is the universal message. And stay with that. The more needs to be done. What specifically? Are there recommendations? What would you like to see intelligence community leaders do differently? There are existing programs that the intelligence community could model after. So the good news here is that these problems are not unique to the intelligence world, but there are some unique dimensions to them when it comes to intelligence work. And so I think it would be important for the community to look at what those differences are, how you might adapt those programs. I think it's important to look at how to reduce stigma 
um, for seeking services would be a really big, important step. Yeah. Before I let you go, how are you doing? Has it gotten easier? I, I mean, I think I'm doing well. <laughs> um, I, uh, and I think it has uh, gotten easier in the sense that I don't live in this world every day. Um, I still do a lot of work on mass violence um, in the course of my, my research at RAND, but we've actually been thinking about secondary trauma exposure because of that type of work that we also do, because I work alongside clinical psychologists who think about this. Um, and so we talk about it a lot and we talk about the need to take breaks, um, the need to be aware of your mental state. You know, I have a rule that I, I don't do mass violence after 10 p.m., you know, so, but, but I think that in the midst of um, the work I was doing, the counterterrorism work I was doing in deployments, it was too rushed to kind of really be thinking about these things. So I think now that for the most part, um, most of the intelligence professionals who were forward in the thick of the fight uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan who are no longer there, they're at home. Um, there's a little bit more space to reflect on what the consequences were for the way in which intelligence became very forward positioned um, in those conflicts and how that is different than perhaps how intelligence and um, the intelligence community was involved in military conflicts in the past. Oh. Heather Williams, thank you. Thank you. She was a deputy national intelligence officer at the National Intelligence Council. She's now at Brand. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. A warmer planet means more wildfires, but fighting those fires can burn just as much money as the fires themselves. When I was a firefighter, I used to think that was the coolest thing. Now all I see is dollar bills flinging out of the bottom of the airplane. I'm Kai Rizdal, funding the fight against fires next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The FBI says local authorities across the country reported more than 7,000 hate crimes last year, the third highest in a decade. But civil rights groups say the data didn't include some of the biggest cities in the country, including New York and Los Angeles, that didn't share information about hate crimes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer continues to denounce several prominent anti-Jewish attacks in recent years, including synagogue attacks in Pittsburgh, Newark, and other cities. Schumer warns if not confronted, additional attacks are likely. We must persist every step of the way in fighting anti-Semitism from wherever it comes, no matter our political disagreements. This is something we can and must work together to achieve. Meanwhile, the FBI says the majority of hate crimes were related to race with black and Asian people, the most likely targets. 
A bloody package has been found outside the Ukrainian embassy in Greece. NPR's Joanna Kakissis tells us at least 28 parcels containing blood, animal parts or explosives have been sent to Ukrainian diplomats around the world. Greek police say a group at uh, a guard rather at Ukraine's embassy in Athens notified them after spotting the bloody parcel. Ukraine's foreign ministry spokesman said in a statement that the parcel is identical to those sent in the past two weeks to Ukrainian diplomats in other countries. Ukraine says the sender's address is also the same. It's a Tesla car dealership in the German town of Schindelfingen. The Ukrainian government blames Russia for the parcels. Russia denies any involvement. Greek and German police are investigating the latest incident. Ukrainian diplomats began receiving suspicious parcels late last month when a letter bomb injured an employee at the Ukrainian embassy in Spain. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kharkiv. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The Medford branch of the Green Line extension is now up and running. It opened with much fanfare early today when the first train ran along the line just before 5 a.m. Governor Charlie Baker says the light rail service will be a key asset in the region's future. I am enormously pleased that we're here today and we're able to take something that so many people have been working on for so long and finally deliver it to them. The $2.3 billion project had been under construction for four years. It adds five new stops in Somerville and Medford. A one-stop branch to Union Square in Somerville opened earlier this year. The state has nearly finished sending $2.7 billion in refunds to more than 3 million taxpayers. An Office of Administration and Finance spokesperson said that everyone eligible who filed their 2021 taxes by the end of October should have received either a paper check or direct deposit by now. These payouts were issued as part of a law that requires the state government to send refunds to residents in the case of an excessive tax revenue surplus. Anyone who filed after October should receive refunds about a month later. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden says his office will not seek to retry a man whose 1976 murder conviction was recently overturned. Milton Jones spent more than a decade in prison after he was found guilty of shooting and killing a bartender during a robbery in Boston. Jones has been out on parole. The judge threw out the conviction last month, citing flimsy evidence and a flawed investigation. Hayden says trying Jones again would be futile and says the facts in the case call into question why Jones was ever charged. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. Sports, the Patriots take on the Cardinals out in Arizona tonight. Celtics are in L.A. to take on the Clippers. The forecast mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny, tad warmer on Thursday, a high of 43. Right now it's 32 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, 
containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Russian President Vladimir Putin's mass mobilization of additional troops prompted tens of thousands of young men to flee the country. NPR's Charles Maines has this story of one young recruit who remained in Russia and is now fighting to avoid the fight. Kirill Berezin remembers the exact moment the Kremlin's so-called special military operation in Ukraine directly entered his life. It was September 24th. He'd found a piece of paper lying at the entrance of the St. Petersburg apartment he shares with his grandmother, a draft notice. I got it that morning. They slipped it under the door. Just days earlier, President Vladimir Putin had announced he was mobilizing 300,000 new troops for Ukraine, and Kirill suspected he might be on the short list. He was 27 and didn't have a wife or family. He'd also done mandatory service in the army a few years earlier. But from that experience, he says he knew he couldn't fight in Ukraine. Creel grew up in Russia's cultural capital of St. Petersburg. Military service just wasn't for him. That feeling of firing a gun, he says he hated it. And it wasn't fear. It was conviction. I understood I couldn't shoot a person in any circumstances. A weapon brings nothing but destruction. It's just not for me. But he headed to the recruitment office that same day to explain he would be happy to serve, just not in that way. What he wanted was alternative military service, anything that didn't involve killing. I could work in a hospital or a kitchen. I could do anything to serve my country, but only without a weapon in my hand. Alternative service is constitutionally guaranteed under Russian law. The defense ministry even lauds Russia as among the first countries to offer conscientious objector status on the grounds of pacifist or religious beliefs dating back to the early 20th century. But Russia's government today maintains there are no such exceptions for troops fighting in Ukraine, even if some, like Kirill, argue that's a question to be decided by the courts. At least it should be. When he got to the recruitment center, the officers were having none of it. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to me. Like with all of us, there was no medical exams or discussions. They just took your documents and put you on a bus headed for a training camp. The recruits were given three days of minimal training. They fired a total of 30 rounds as target practice, Kirill says, before being sent by train to a staging ground near the Ukrainian border. There were guys acting like it was all a game, saying, I can't wait to get there. We'll find those Ukrainians and take care of them, that sort of thing. But those who knew where we were going, they kept to themselves, clearly terrified. When the recruits arrived at the military camp, Kirill found it overcrowded, with not enough tents for incoming troops. He slept outside on the ground. He also heard rumors, later proven true, that newly mobilized troops had already been thrown into battle and died. Meanwhile, Kirill kept insisting on alternative service. He'd filed a formal legal appeal, and his commanding officer knew it. He'd say, why get the police or courts involved when they can just bash your head in, throw you in a truck, and off you go? And all this time, Kirill still refused to pick up a gun, and the harassment, he says, increased. He admits he contemplated suicide as he grew more desperate, even writing a farewell note explaining the circumstances before he realized he couldn't find a rope to hang himself. And then news came his unit was heading out. 
for Ukraine. No one tells you anything about where we're going, but I knew it wasn't safe to be under the command of this officer, and I didn't know if I'd have any means of communication when we got there. Desperate, Kirill did the only other thing he could think of to save himself. He left the base. He negotiated a ride back to St. Petersburg from a local taxi driver. It cost him most of his savings, he said, some $500. But the driver didn't ask questions about Kirill, about his uniform, about why he was leaving in the first place. And when he got to St. Petersburg, he immediately surrendered to local authorities and filed a formal complaint against his senior officer. Again, he said he wanted alternative citizen service. And that's where I met him, as he waited for another hearing to find out whether he would be returned to the army and an uncertain future. Kirill acknowledged there were risks. He might be given a lengthy jail sentence for desertion or refusing to fight. Worse, he might be sent back to that same commanding officer. And that seemed likely to happen until at last a bit of luck. Kirill reached out to a commander he'd served under during his year as a conscript, long before Ukraine. And it was decided Kirill will still have to serve, but at least now he'll be under different leadership, and it seems in a non-combat role. Still, Kirill thinks he made a mistake that day, the day he found that draft notice and headed straight for the recruitment office. Now, he says, he suspects they threw papers under as many doors as they could. A quota given, a quota met. Whoever showed up, showed up, he says, shaking his head. And I walked right in. Charles Maines, NPR News, St. Petersburg. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. Finally, I can tell you that I choose to go to the moon with artists. Japanese billionaire Yusaku Maezawa announced the Dear Moon mission in 2018. The fashion executive wants to take a group of creatives with him on a six-day trip powered by SpaceX's Starship spacecraft. The goal is to inspire great works of art for humankind. He asks, what if Jean-Michel Basquiat had gone to space? What masterpieces might he have created? And now he's selected his eight-person crew from a pool of one million applicants. So let's meet them, starting with the man Mayazawa hopes will serve as a leader for the mission, international DJ Steve Aoki, speaking here on a promo video. I can't miss this opportunity. My soul is, is begging for this. I don't know what it's going to do to me emotionally. And uh, I guess that's part of the adventure. That's Tim Dodd. He teaches rocket science on YouTube and has seen the explosions of four Starship prototypes. So he's a little scared, but he trusts the design will be reliable by the time they take off. 22-year-old Dave Joshi is an Indian actor. Like Mayazawa and the other crew members, he's dreaming about the artistic possibilities this trip could inspire. To create something unimagined yet, we need to experience something unexplored yet. Irish photographer Rhiannon Adam is also excited to gain a new perspective on this adventure. I spend a lot of my life working with very remote communities, and it felt like a natural thing to do to apply to go to space and explore the most remote community ever, which would be us in space. Choreographer Yemi A.D. will also be part of that most remote community. It's a huge privilege, but not only for me as a Czech person, but also for me as a Nigerian person. So will filmmaker Brendan Hall and photographer Kareem Ilya. Some of the most important nights of my life were spent trying to capture the wonder of the night sky. I never even dreamed of 
actually going up there. I expect that I will come back as a vastly different person. And the final member of the eight-member crew is the rapper known as Top from the K-pop group Big Bang. This trip is a dream come true for him. I have always fantasized about space and the moon since I was young. There is no set date yet for this mission. The rocket is still in development, and the team has to undergo training before they go to space. But Mayazawa says it could happen as early as next year. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton has returned from a visit to Ukraine. He was part of a congressional delegation that met with U.S. and Ukrainian officials in Kyiv, as well as U.S. troops deployed in Poland. Congressman Moulton joins us now to discuss the visit. Welcome, Congressman, to WBUR's All Things Considered. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, this was your second visit to Ukraine. You were there just about a year ago before the war started. Why did you decide that it's important to visit Ukraine at this moment in time? I think Ukraine is an incredibly important U.S. ally. But I went there in December of last year, exactly a year ago, at a time when a lot of people weren't taking the threat of Russia's invasion seriously. And I came back and, and wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how we weren't doing enough to prevent a war with Russia. We weren't doing enough to deter Putin. We were just talking about a response. Of course, sadly, uh, that proved quite accurate. And a couple months later, Putin invaded. They're now about eight months into the war. And I'll tell you, it's remarkable how little has changed in the capital city. By that, I mean, despite the horrific war that Vladimir Putin has unleashed on this country, an illegal and completely unnecessary war that's killing thousands and thousands of people, the Ukrainians are so remarkably resilient that, that Kiev felt much the same as it did a year ago. Mm-hmm. What were the main things that you took away from from this visit from Kiev, uh, other than the fact that uh, they're still living their lives there? Well, they're living their lives, but they have to win this war. It's obvious that right now there's just no negotiating space between the Ukrainians and Russia. Ukraine wants its country back, and they certainly deserve to have it back. Uh, Russia doesn't seem willing to budge. So it's important that we get Ukraine what they need to win this war. But their requests change over time. And what they needed a few months ago is not what they need today. Today, they're focused on getting missile defenses, uh, air defenses, to stop this onslaught of Russian attacks against their energy infrastructure. Now, Putin's trying to use winter as a weapon and freeze the Ukrainians to death over the winter months. They've got to shoot those missiles out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you anticipate my next question about the, about the winter. It's getting more intense there in Ukraine. Uh, how is the energy infrastructure holding up there? And, and can it ensure that Ukrainians do not freeze to death? Their energy infrastructure is fragile, uh, in part because it's all based on Soviet technology. So the immediate focus is getting the replacement old Soviet parts to plug back in the, the pieces that Putin has knocked out. In the long run, though, we talked about how important it is that they transition their power grid to a Western system, not only because it will be more resilient and reliable, but because it will tie Ukraine in with the West. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the United States approach to its support for Ukraine needs to change based on anything you, you saw on this visit? Or are we doing all the right things in your view? I think that for the longest time in this war, we've been doing all the right things, sometimes a little bit late. 
And I think there's still more that we can do to accelerate the delivery of supplies, both humanitarian and military, uh, to the Ukrainians. The number one thing we need to do is accelerate the delivery of air defense systems like the Patriot missile. We've got to get that to them as quickly as they can, because every day that goes by where Putin is able to launch more attacks on their energy infrastructure, it threatens to literally freeze Ukrainians to death over the winter. The second thing we need to do is really focus on what they need to win this as quickly as possible, to push Russia back to a point where they're willing to negotiate on more reasonable terms. Uh, ultimately, we need to ensure the strategic defeat of Vladimir Putin so that he doesn't go anywhere next. Putin will not stop on his own. And if he doesn't get stopped in Ukraine, he could well go to a NATO country next. That means U.S. troops would have to be involved. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks for speaking with WBUR as All Things Considered. Thank you. It's good to be back. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on All Things Considered, Lionel Messi's life and legacy as he attempts to win his first World Cup. That's up next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com, and Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. Lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny, bit warmer on Thursday, a high of 43. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. What do American Christians believe about their religion? A new survey finds that those beliefs are as diverse as the country they live in, including a sizable number of regular churchgoers who believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not divine. So we'll go beyond the narrow slice of political evangelicalism that often grabs media attention and talk about the broad spectrum of belief in American Christianity. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When you hear about Lionel Messi, there's often this word attached to his name, arguably, as in arguably the best soccer player in the world or arguably the best who has ever played the game. And for soccer fans, the debate about whether we can once and for all erase that term arguably depends on one single fact, whether Lionel Messi ever raises the golden, the mythical FIFA World Cup. Tomorrow, Messi will lead Argentina in the first semifinal of the World Cup in Qatar against Croatia, a team that lost the final to France four years 
years ago. And to talk about the game and a whole lot more, we're now joined by Jasmine Garst, who's host of the NPR Futuro Studios podcast, The Last Cup, which follows the life and legacy of Lionel Messi. Jasmine, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, there is so much that I want to talk to you about. But first, I just want to do a little emotional check-in. Friend of friend here, how are you feeling ahead of tomorrow's game? I'm not well. <laughs> I'm just not well. Um, look, there, there's no easy games anymore. You know, everyone who's playing right now is amazing. Every team is wonderful. And Croatia is, 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 a, is just a fantastic team. And it's a joy to watch them play. And we're playing well, too. And I'm very nervous. I, I, I expect to watch a lot of it uh, in between my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have to ask you, um, how happy are you that Brazil was knocked out in the previous round? No, I love the Brazilian team. I have nothing but love for our neighbors. Um, I like watching good soccer. And Brazil is always good soccer. I also love an like kind of an underdog story. So and I think Croatia, like, wow, I don't think a lot of people expected Croatia yeah. or Morocco. And that's just what makes this tournament so exciting. I was sad to see Brazil go. And I would have loved to see a Brazil-Argentina. That's like the classic rivalry. It would have been fun. So your podcast, The Last Cup, mm -hmm. touches on a number of themes. But there's this sense of urgency, like even in the name, that this might be Messi's last chance to win a World Cup. So how high are the stakes for Messi in this tournament? Well, he said that this is his last World Cup. I mean, there's rumors about what soccer club he's going to go to next. There's been rumors about Inter Miami FC. He is one of the best players in the world and in soccer history, and he's never won a World Cup. This is his last chance. And, and I think there's definitely, that's one of the big narratives that has emerged from this World Cup. This is his last chance to do it. So Messi relocated from Argentina to Barcelona in Spain at age 13, and he went on to win every single possible championship with Barcelona yes. FC. He had a choice, though, to represent Argentina or Spain, and he chose Argentina. And for Messi, earning the respect and the love of Argentina's fans seems to mean quite a lot. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, in many ways, Messi's story is a, a classic immigrant's journey. You know, he leaves at a very young age, in large part because, you know, Argentina has an economic and political collapse. Uh, in 2001, it was a very severe crisis. He and his father go to Spain. The rest of his family stays behind. And he goes on to do these amazing things, you know, like he becomes an international soccer hero, beloved in Spain and in the world. But his dream, he's always looking back at his home country, Argentina, and thinking, you know, my dream is to come back and win for my home team. And, and in many ways, I think this parallels a lot of immigrants' journeys, you know, where you leave because you have to leave. But you're always kind of looking back and yearning and you have a nostalgia and a melancholy and, and a desire, a fantasy of someday coming back home triumphant. It's not what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't mind, I want to get a little bit nerdy here and get into the uh -huh. weeds of soccer for a second. Sure. In the last cup, you talk about how in Argentina, maybe even in Latin America as a whole, people play soccer differently than in Europe. And 
that's something that's been tricky for Messi. What's the difference? Why is that? Well, Latin American soccer, South American soccer is very unique. It's a bit individualistic. It's been described to me as like like jazz, you know? It's like there's a lot of improvisation and riffing and magic. It's also kind of like do or die. Uh, I think in South America, you know, when you're playing soccer, you're playing for the glory, but a lot of times you're also playing to get your family ahead and out of a difficult situation. And in if South American soccer is jazz and improvisation, European soccer, it's very synchronized and planned out and almost like orchestral. You know, everything has a role and it's very technical. And so, yes, when Leo Messi, when he arrives in Spain as a kid, they're they're absolutely wowed by him. He's just extraordinary. But there's like this constant fight, which is, listen, you got to pass the ball. You know, you're not like the lone ranger out here on the mm. field. This is a team and this is how we're going to do it. Ironically, when he gets a little older and he goes back to play with the Argentina national team in competitions like the World Cup, almost immediately his coaches are like, what's up with all this ball passing? <laughs> Almost immediately, his coaches are like, he's not playing with, like, the punk rock, with the edge, you know, with the, this is do or die, this is street soccer. He's playing like a kid from Spain. And this is an identity conflict. This identity conflict follows him throughout his whole career. He's always kind of straddling in between. So, Jasmine... I want to end our conversation mm. with the secret that you share at the end of The Last Cup. And I, I hope I'm not giving too much away because people <laughs> should listen to all of it. But it's the secret about the idea of going home, going home for messy, going mm. home for migrants, going home probably for anyone who's ever left their hometown. So if you could just let us in on that secret, what is it? Um, I became really obsessed when I was doing this podcast with the idea of going back home, which is ultimately what I think Messi's dream has always been. I actually picked up a copy of my auntie's The Odyssey. You know, and The Odyssey is this tale, right, about yeah. this guy who leaves home, a young guy leaves home, achieves amazing feats abroad. He becomes a hero abroad. And the whole time he dreams of coming back home a hero. I don't want to ruin The Odyssey for anyone, but that's... <laughs> he goes back home and everything has changed. Home is no longer the way he remembered it. And neither is he. He's changed. And the whole idea is you don't quite get to go back to this mythical, idealized place. It doesn't matter how many cups you win. Jasmine Garst is the host of NPR and Futuro Studios podcast, The Last Cup. Good luck and may the best team win the World Cup. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. 
ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It ensures that the federal government will respect our marriages no matter what this extremist Supreme Court may do. That is important. The LGBTQ community is breathing a collective sigh of relief now that Congress has approved legislation that codifies same-sex marriage into federal law. It's Monday, December 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have more on the Respect for Marriage Act. Also ahead, a major drug maker is applied to sell Narcan, which reverses opioid overdoses over the counter. And the man accused of making the bomb that blew up a plane over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 has finally appeared in a U.S. courtroom. It's a big moment for the victim's families. We don't forget. Our government doesn't forget, and they hold people accountable. And it sends a very strong message. We'll have more on today's proceedings. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The man accused of making a bomb that exploded on board Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 has been ordered detained without bond. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports he's seeking a private lawyer to defend him. Abu Aguila Mahmoud Masood Kir al-Almarimi faces three criminal charges, including destruction of an aircraft resulting in death. That charge carries the possibility of life in prison if he's convicted. Al-Marimi says he doesn't want to talk until he sees a private attorney. Prosecutor Eric Kennerson asked that he be held in federal custody. The judge says Al-Marimi is due back in court later this month to figure out who will defend him in the case and whether he should be detained until his trial begins. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. The State Department says it is committed to bringing home a former U.S. Marine jailed in Russia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the promise came just days after the U.S. arranged a prisoner swap to get basketball star Brittany Griner home. So far, the Russians have not been willing to negotiate seriously or constructively in the case of Paul Whelan held on espionage charges. That's according to State Department spokesperson Ned Price, who says the U.S. had hoped Whelan would be released at the same time as Griner in exchange for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. We are going to be relentless. Uh, in working with Paul Whelan's family, his loved ones, uh, and in turn with the Russians to do everything we can to see this case resolved as, as soon as we can. 
Prices. Brittany Griner remains at an Army medical facility in Texas recovering from her ordeal. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A senior State Department official says the body of soccer journalist Grant Wall has been repatriated to the U.S. after his death last week while covering the World Cup in Qatar. The official says Wall's remains and his belongings arrived at New York's JFK airport at around 8.30 a.m. this morning. They were accompanied by a consular official from the U.S. Embassy in Doha. Government price checkers are set to issue a new report card on inflation this week. NPR Scott Horsley reports the news comes just ahead of the Federal Reserve's latest decision on interest rates. The Labor Department is set to report tomorrow on consumer prices for November. Gasoline prices have fallen sharply, with the average price now lower than it was a year ago. Some of those savings could be offset, though, by rising grocery prices. Wholesale data released last week showed a big spike in the price of winter vegetables. While food and energy prices often bounce up and down, the Federal Reserve is concerned about potentially more stubborn inflation in the cost of services. The Fed's expected to raise interest rates by another half percentage point this week. The central bank is also keeping an eye on the tight labor market. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 528 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA's green line finally goes all the way to Medford. After decades of planning and delays, five new stations opened to riders early this morning, completing the multi-billion dollar green line extension. WBUR's Laura Craigle reports that huge crowds turned up to celebrate. Hundreds of riders braved the pre-dawn cold to nab a spot on the first train leaving Medford Tough Station. Koya Lynn Smith was among them. She says she wanted to be a part of tea history and was lucky to get on board. I like just squeezed my way on. (laughs) It was insane. The mosh pit atmosphere, as one passenger called it, eventually calmed down enough for Ricardo Madrid to have a relatively quiet commute. He hopped on a train at Ball Square Station. His trip to work will be a half hour faster than his old bus route requiring multiple transfers. That's easy transportation for me going to Boston College. I'm so happy. (laughs) The T projects the Medford extension will serve 50,000 riders a day. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. TVs and bars, restaurants, gyms, and other public places in Boston have to activate the closed caption option. That's the result of an ordinance Mayor Michelle Wu signed into law today. The goal is to remove barriers in public spaces when it comes to communication access for people with disabilities. Boston city officials say Seattle and San Francisco have similar requirements. A Watertown father and son convicted in a lottery prize scheme will be sentenced in April. A federal jury convicted Ali and Youssef Jafar last week. The pair claimed over $20 million in state lottery winnings and took over $1.2 million of taxpayer funds in the scheme. They helped lottery players avoid taxes by purchasing their winning tickets from them for cash, claiming them as their own, and offset their winnings with fake gambling losses on their tax returns. Sports, the Celtics are in L.A. to take on the Clippers tonight, a late game there. The Patriots take on the Cardinals tonight out in Arizona. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 25 degrees. Mostly sunny uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly 600,000 married couples in the United States can breathe a sigh of relief in the words of our next guest. President Joe Biden's expected to sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law tomorrow. It codifies same-sex marriage into federal law. The legislation gained support after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That ruling raised fears that the justices could target marriage and other constitutional rights next. Kelly Robinson is president of the Human Rights Campaign, an LGBTQ rights group that has been pushing for these protections. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. To quickly review, the Respect for Marriage Act repeals a law called the Defense of Marriage Act, which banned same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court ruled DOMA unconstitutional seven years ago. So why the urgency to take this step now to protect same-sex and interracial marriages? I mean, we saw after the Dobbs decision that in so many ways, too many of our rights are just one Supreme Court decision away from being lost. And I know for me, as a queer woman, as a queer woman of color in this country who's married, I was worried that at some point the courts would also invalidate my marriage. Now I'm relieved because that's not the case. Congress has taken action to ensure that our marriages are valid, that our love will be respected. You know, conservative justices who consider themselves originalists often say things along the lines of, if you want to make this a policy, get Congress to pass a law. Don't try to tell me something is in the Constitution when the literal words of the text don't say what you're arguing it says. And so in fighting to pass this law, on some level, are you saying to the originalists, you're right, we should do this through legislation instead of through judicial ruling? When Roe was overturned, it was the first time that the courts have been in the business of restricting our rights instead of expanding them. This is a moment of crisis in so many ways for our democracy. So I think what's important here is that the Congress took action to make sure that our rights are upheld and restored. I think it's also important to note that this is where the majority of the American people are. Over 70% of the country supports marriage equality. This is a matter of the policy actually catching up to where the people already are. This passed with exemptions for religious organizations. Was that a compromise worth making? You know, what the RMA does is it upholds the status quo. It doesn't write new law. And in the status quo, there are religious exemptions in place for specific institutions. And I think that the values of it are still clear, even with the exemptions. It ensures that the federal government will respect our marriages no matter what this extremist Supreme Court may do. That is important. So this is a strong piece of legislation that the Human Rights Campaign definitely stands by. You and I are talking about this legislation protecting marriage at a time when a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills are being introduced in state legislatures. According to your organization's numbers, last year was the deadliest year on record for transgender people. In that context, should marriage really be the top priority of leading national LGBT rights organizations like HRC? Look, we don't have a choice but to fight on every front in this battle. Yes, passing the Respect for Marriage Act was truly important. But I'm also very clear that last year was a deadliest year on record for trans lives, particularly Black trans women. I'm very clear that we're seeing a rash of hate-filled legislation moving through the Supreme Court. I'm also very clear that it wasn't even three weeks ago that lives were stolen from us at Club Q. Being a part of this community, being a Black queer woman at that, I know that we've got to fight on all fronts. And so with so much on the line, what's next? What's the top priority now? 
The state legislative sessions are front of mind for us. We are already seeing states pre-file bills that are attacking our community, particularly our trans youth. So we're going to be doing all that we can to stand up and fight this legislative session to make sure that these bills do not go into law. And even more than that, to stop this hate-fueled rhetoric that's attempting to dehumanize our community. That sort of rhetoric is resulting in real-life violence in our lives. That is a top priority for us. Kelly Robinson is president of the Human Rights Campaign. Thanks a lot. Thank you. What if the only way to get your money out of the bank was to stage a robbery or a sit-in? That's exactly what's happening in Lebanon. When the country's economy collapsed in 2019, banks froze people out of their accounts. Destitute Lebanese have taken to demanding their holdings at gunpoint or with disruptive protests. And some do get a little of their savings back. NPR's Ruth Sherlock went to a recent standoff. When we arrive at the bank in the northern Lebanese city of Tripoli, the atmosphere is tense. There's a lot of security and police outside. There's army with M16 rifles internal security forces gathered outside. Sometimes the depositor holding up the bank to demand their savings is armed. In this case, we're told, the woman inside, Zahra Khalid, is not. She's in a wheelchair and is refusing to leave. Her family and other depositors have come to support her, crowding the entrance to the bank. Suddenly, there's a commotion by the door. Zahra Khalid is wheeled out by her adult son, Ismail, and they are beside themselves. The bank brought the cops on us. We're only asking for our rights, Ismail Khalid shouts. You've left us to starve. May God smite our leaders, his mother cries. After hours of negotiations, they've been escorted out of the bank by the police empty-handed. The World Bank says Lebanon's leaders spent decades running the country's economy like a Ponzi scheme. According to the bank's investigation, they hollowed out public services to enrich themselves and those around them. When everything collapsed in 2019, the report says bank owners should have assumed the losses, but instead they simply froze the depositors' accounts. Now, more than 80% of the population lives in poverty, including the family of Zahra Khalid in Tripoli. After she leaves the bank, we go with her to her home. It's an apartment with beautiful traditional Lebanese tiles on the floor and completely empty. She says they've sold all the furniture. What we used to be in here? Was there a bed or...? They tell me they've sold the furniture piece by piece to survive. A small coffee table in the mostly empty living room is piled with the contents of the fridge, which they say they sold the day before. They have bank statements showing that they have almost $90,000 in their account. Some of that money comes from a house they just sold, but now they can't get to it. Khalid's son, Ismail, and her son-in-law have both lost their jobs. Through an interpreter, Ismail tells me how life now is humiliation. It's very humiliating because they're forced to now to take on credit stuff from the grocers. He can't bring himself to put his eyes with the eyes of the grocer. His mother, Zahra Khalid, has already lost a leg to diabetes, and she needs an MRI on her other leg, but she can't afford it. 
And that's what prompted them to do the sit-in at the bank, says Khalid's daughter, Amina. When your mother needs medication and you have money you can't access, what do you do? What choice do you have, she asks. Bank heists are now almost a daily reality in Lebanon. In many cases, depositors come armed. In some cases, they have toy guns. Reportedly, so far, no one has been killed. Most of those that do get money only take what they're owed. And now the depositors are becoming a more organized movement. We meet one of the most active groups, called Cry of the Depositors, at a protest they're staging in Beirut's swanky downtown district. The government is hosting a banking conference at a hotel there, so the depositors have set up loudspeakers pointing at the hotel entrance to send their message. They call the bankers mafia and thieves and demand that the heads of Lebanon's banks be jailed. In recent months, the group has offered legal advice to depositors who've robbed banks, or they've shown up at heists to offer moral support. He gets into the bank, we are outside, yeah, do it, come on. So it's like we are giving him some motivation. Ibrahim Abdullah, a spokesman for the movement, says he knows what they do is controversial and they don't want to be criminals. It's not the right way. It's not the right way. We are looking for a solution for our deposits. Abdullah sells real estate and says he has millions frozen in the bank and his family can barely get by without it. My son sometimes, let's go have dinner. I, I'm not, I can't afford to have a dinner. And I have millions in the bank. He wants answers. Will the perpetrators of this economic collapse be held accountable? Will he get his money back? I go across the road to the banking conference to try to get answers. People arriving in very expensive cars, Mercedes, Land Cruisers, bulletproof vehicles, blacked out windows. Okay, let's sit somewhere. I meet Kamel Wazni from the Lebanese Control Commission, which supervises Lebanon's banking sector. We've been trying to monitor and force banks to comply with our regulations. Wasney points out that depositors are allowed to withdraw a maximum of $400 per month. Of course, it's not satisfactory where people hope and expectation and their hard work, but that's what we are able to provide. He says the commission is working to reform the banks, but he can't rule out that some of the depositors' money might be gone for good. It's really difficult at this point to try to answer the questions that have been posed by the public. Some banks do respond to depositors' demand for help. Several days after her sit-in in Tripoli, Zahra Khalid's family calls to say her bank has agreed to give the family some of their savings so she can pay for medical care. So some funds are released like this, on a case-by-case -case basis. But overall, for now, there's no solution. And most depositors question if they will ever see their money again. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 32 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, a major drug maker has applied to sell Narcan over-the-counter. Addiction experts say making Narcan widely available is a crucial next step to stop fentanyl deaths. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up 1.5% at 34,005. S&P was up four-tenths of a percent, closed at 3991. And the Nasdaq was up a quarter percent to end the day at 11,144. In business news, Rhode Island-based drugstore chain CVS and its competitor Walgreens will pay more than $10 billion to settle a lawsuit alleging the companies contributed to the opioid crisis. Those deals were announced today. Massachusetts is in line to get nearly $230 million from the settlement. Attorney General Mara Healy says CVS and Walgreens failed to properly oversee the dispensing of opioids at their stores. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. Highs will be around 37. Partly sunny, tad warmer on Thursday. The highs 43 degrees. Right now, 32 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a breakthrough in the fight to bring down the soaring number of drug deaths in the U.S. For the first time, a pharmaceutical company plans to sell a nasal spray over-the-counter that quickly reverses opioid overdoses. Some drug policy experts say it could save tens of thousands of lives. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Here's what typically happens when a person is caught up in opioid addiction, whether it's pain pills, fentanyl, or heroin. That's the drug used by China Darrington for 16 years. When you overdose on heroin, you just kind of drift off. We call it going on the nod. Overdoses are common, especially now with more powerful opioids like fentanyl on the street. During a severe opioid overdose, people stop breathing and die. Darrington was lucky. One medication saved her life. If it wasn't for Narcan, and again, I've experienced being Narcaned, I want to say about a half a dozen times in my life, that kept me alive long enough. I, you've got to give people a chance to stay alive. 
Narcan, which is one name brand for the drug naloxone, quickly reverses the harmful effects of opioids. It works fast, it's easy to use, people start breathing again. But right now, naloxone is often really hard to get. Dr. Ruhul Gupta, head of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, points out that last year alone, 80,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. With naloxone, many of those deaths would have been avoided. There's today no excuse no excuse absolutely for not having it everywhere available when we know that that's one medication that can save tens of thousands of lives right now. Access to Narcan and other forms of naloxone is complicated by a dizzying patchwork of federal and state laws. Now, a drug company called Emergent Biosolutions is seeking regulatory approval to sell Narcan over-the-counter, making it available without all the muddle, without even needing a prescription. We see this as a significant step forward for Narcan and naloxone products. In Bob general. Kramer is the company's CEO. He says the Food and Drug Administration has agreed to fast-track its review, with an answer expected by the end of March. Kramer says the goal is to have Narcan so widely available that it's everywhere, ready in people's purses, in school classrooms, in shops and businesses, whenever someone overdoses. It's very easy to administer. You place the device in the nostril and you deploy with a puff. Drug policy experts contacted by NPR agree making Narcan widely available is an important next step to reduce drug deaths. But they also raised one fear. I am very concerned about the price. Nabarundas Gupta is a drug researcher at the University of North Carolina. Emergent Biosolutions hasn't yet set a price for the non-prescription version of Narcan. Desgupta says if it's too expensive, many people using drugs on the street just won't buy it. If we have this resource scarcity mentality that this is an expensive product, this is a special product, then people will not take enough kits to do what they need to do. In much of the country, governments, insurance companies, and nonprofit groups subsidize naloxone distribution. It's not yet clear how that system will affect price once this drug is on pharmacy shelves. Gina Darrington, who's been in recovery from heroin for more than a decade, points out opioid use is far deadlier now because of fentanyl. She believes if naloxone is more widely available and affordable, it will save a lot of lives. I think it's a wonderful thing. The potency of the drugs nowadays is just, it's so unfair. So naloxone has got to be around. People have got to have access to it. The FDA has signaled it plans to approve over-the-counter naloxone sales and is urging other companies to apply for approval to sell their versions of the drug without a prescription. Brian Mann, NPR News. Just one month ago, cryptocurrency exchange FTX went from a $32 billion behemoth to bankrupt. And its founder and now former CEO will hear some tough talk on Tuesday when he testifies before Congress about how it all collapsed so spectacularly. And that will be a change for Sam Bankman-Fried, who spent a good chunk of FTX's short life meeting with lawmakers, building up the brand, and crypto's credibility. NPR's David Gura reports. When I interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried in June, he happened to be in Washington. I got here got here Tuesday, staying till Friday. And there were a lot of meetings. Bankman-Fried kept pushing back the start time for my interview. I'm in D.C. bouncing around, and uh, my, my schedule went to like always. Known for wearing shorts and a T-shirt, Bankman-Fried had this casual demeanor. But his frequent trips to Washington were very strategic. 
Paul Argenti is an expert on corporate communication at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and he says they were part of an ambitious effort to build and burnish FTX's brand. And that set Bankman Freed apart from other crypto executives. A lot of these people don't think about the Washington angle in the way that he did. As Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies became more popular, Bankman Freed recognized a couple things. One, the likelihood there'd be more rules and regulations. And two, the opportunity he had to shape them. Bankman Freed met with powerful people on Capitol Hill, including the chair and the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. He got a lot of face time with Republican Pat Toomey, who sponsored crypto legislation. He came to speak with me several times, I'd say, I don't know, three or four times over the course of the last two years. Bankman Freed hired a former member of Toomey's staff to be a lobbyist. He met with key regulators. And Bankman Freed donated millions to political candidates. Last summer, he told me FTX's focus was not on marketing, on, say, Facebook ads or Google ads. Instead, there was this multifaceted effort to get its name out there, and its outreach to Washington was a critical part of that. Here's what Bankman Freed told ABC News just days after FTX fell apart. We did a lot of things to try to, uh, to try and bolster our reputation, to try and you know, help our brand. Bankman Freed wanted FTX to stand out in the world of crypto, which the chair of the SEC has said is like the Wild West. And according to Paul Argenti at Dartmouth, Bankman Freed seemed almost cunning. He was trying to attain credibility in this careful, calculated way. You know, if we were studying this from a corporate communication perspective in my class, he actually did it about as perfectly as you could possibly expect. Step one was Washington. Step two was Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Bankman Freed lined up hundreds of millions of dollars from well-known venture capital firms and asset managers like BlackRock. And then there was step three, to appeal aggressively to everyday Americans, to make FTX as recognizable as Visa or MasterCard. FTX made a Super Bowl ad. It bought naming rights and paid for endorsement deals. It even gave Major League Baseball millions to put its logo on umpires' uniforms. Kenneth Shropshire, who teaches sports law at Penn, marvels at that last one. The idea that you put uh, a patch with this company on the arbiter of truth in your game, that is something to pause and think about. Which many of the people Bankman Freed courted are now doing as they push for answers to understand how FTX crumbled so completely in the course of one week. And we're seeing Bankman Freed deploy a new strategy, puzzling to corporate branding experts and to lawyers alike. Even in disgrace, he hasn't stopped trying to manage his reputation. Bankman-Fried will explain himself at a virtual appearance before a House committee on Tuesday. That comes on the heels of an appearance at a big business conference, a long string of interviews, and he's faced his critics in several Twitter spaces. At a moment when most people in his position would keep quiet, Bankman-Fried just keeps talking. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the man accused of making a bomb that killed 270 people in the skies over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988, has made an initial appearance in a U.S. courtroom. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow on Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny. A tad warmer on Thursday. The highs 43. Cloudy with rain likely on Friday. The highs around 47 degrees. Right now, 31 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Fishermen say they're on the front lines of migration from Tunisia. I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. Every time I find a body, I sometimes spend a week, I can't sleep. Because you didn't get into, you're not supposed to see that. Yeah, we're supposed to fish fish, not bodies. Leila Fadl reports from Zarziz, Tunisia, on the next morning edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Top officials in the Biden administration say they are working and talking with Russian authorities to figure out what it will take to secure the release of former Marine Paul Whelan from a Russian prison after last week's prisoner exchange sent American basketball player Brittany Griner home. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says they're still trying to figure out what it will take to ultimately secure Whelan's freedom. We are going to keep working at this. The big challenge we had over the course of the past several months is that what Russia was asking for to secure Paul Whelan's release was not something that we had to be able to give. That is a problem we are trying to solve. Solomon says the administration plans to have another engagement with Russian officials this week aimed at securing the release of Whelan, who's serving 16 years on spy charges U.S. officials have called baseless. California is expected to receive more than $500 million as part of a settlement with Walgreens over its role in the opioid epidemic from member station KQED. Keith Mazaguchi reports. This is part of a multi-state settlement reached in principle with the retail pharmacy chain. Walgreens is accused of failing to properly oversee the dispensing of opioids at its pharmacies, which the state's claim helped fuel the ongoing opioid epidemic. The state attorney general's office is currently reviewing the terms of a similar agreement with CVS. To date, California's Department of Justice has secured approximately $30 billion through settlements with opioid manufacturers and distributors. For NPR News, I'm Keith Mizuguchi in San Francisco. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street as shares of Microsoft helped lift the tech sector higher. The Fed is also expected to announce its latest interest rate hike later this week. The Dow gained 528 points, up more than 1.5%. Tech-heavy Nasdaq up 1.25%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton says the U.S. needs to act fast to support Ukrainians in their fight against Russia. Moulton and a bipartisan group of members of Congress just returned from a weekend trip to Ukraine. He tells WBUR Russian leader Vladimir Putin's secret a recent strategy of attacking Ukraine's energy grid could be catastrophic. The number one thing we need to do is accelerate the delivery of air defense systems like the Patriot missile. Every day that goes by where Putin is able to launch more attacks on their energy infrastructure, it threatens to literally freeze Ukrainians to death over the winter. Moulton says he's amazed by the Ukrainians' continued resilience amid the ongoing attacks. The Medford branch of the Green Line extension is now open. It had been in development for decades and under construction for the past four years. The first train of the new branch departed just before 5 a.m. today. Senator Elizabeth Warren says it's been a long ride, but it was well worth the wait. The 
extension of the Green Line will increase ridership by 50,000 rides a day. That is a measure of how badly we needed it. Senator Ed Markey calls the Green Line extension a critical step toward a Green New Deal in Greater Boston. To make public transit a public good, to reduce congestion on our roads and clean the air we breathe, to allow anyone, regardless of income or geography, to travel safely, reliably, affordably, and sustainably. The Green Line extension adds six new stops in Medford and Somerville. Governor Charlie Baker plans to release over $34 million in grants to electrify buses. The funds came from a $75 million settlement with Volkswagen after the car maker produced fraudulent emissions data for certain vehicles. The proposal would largely allocate the funds for regional transit authority electric buses. More people are expected to travel during the holidays this year than last. That's the estimate out today from AAA Northeast. It predicts that nearly a third of Massachusetts residents will be off to grandma's or elsewhere. Most will drive. Patient data for Mass General Brigham shows the antiviral drug Paxlovid cuts COVID deaths and hospitalizations by nearly half. Experts say the data are especially promising because they indicate the drug can be effective in highly vaccinated populations. Analysts say Paxlovid is a key part of the future fight against COVID because current monoclonal antibody therapies don't work against new strains of the virus. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. Highs around 37. Partly sunny. Tad warmer on Thursday. The highs around 43. Right now, it's 31 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The man accused of making a bomb that detonated over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988 has finally appeared in an American courtroom. Family members of many of the 270 victims are closely watching the case as it moves through the justice system. NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson followed the court proceeding today, and she's here to talk more about it now. So Carrie, who is this alleged bomb maker and why did it take so many years to prosecute him? His name is Abu Aguila Mohammed Masoud Kir al-Marimi, and he was detained in Libya for another crime related to bomb-making when he allegedly confessed his role in this attack on Pan Am Flight 103. That flight carried 190 Americans, many of them 
were college students who were returning home for the holidays in December 1988. The FBI finally took custody of this man over the weekend, but the circumstances under which he was turned over remain pretty murky right now. Okay, so Carrie, what happened when he appeared in federal court today? Yeah, the magistrate judge advised Masood of his rights. He said he didn't want to talk until he saw his attorney. He wants to hire a private lawyer. The judge is giving him a week to figure that out. The judge also read the criminal charges against him. One of them is destruction of an aircraft resulting in death, and that charge carries the possibility of life in prison. The prosecutor, Eric Kennerson, says countless families have never recovered from their loss that day in 1988, and they may never recover. American officials say the defendant was a longtime member of the Libyan Intelligence Service. And here in the U.S., it seems he's being held in the detention center in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the river from Washington, D.C. Law enforcement officials at that facility are familiar with high-security defendants, including people like Russian operative Maria Butina and terrorism convict Zacharias Musawi. This is a major development in a crime that is now nearly 34 years old. So how are family members of those who were killed reacting to the news of this arrest? These families have been very active over the years. They've been in touch with law enforcement, especially since 2020, when then-Attorney General Bill Barr announced these charges. Kara Weeps lost her brother Rick Minetti on that Pan Am flight. Here's what she told Weekend All Things Considered. This was paramount to us that he be tried in the United States. This means so much to the family, so much to my family, so much to me, to know that justice is going to be served in our country under our laws. And you know, Juana, for many of these families, it's going to be easier for them to actually attend court proceedings or follow news coverage from here in Washington, D.C. The only other person convicted in this attack was tried in the Netherlands. He died several years ago, so this may be one of the last chances at justice these families receive. Carrie, in the time that we have left, this bombing remains the deadliest terror attack in British history. But what does this case mean for a generation of Americans? You know, it took years of painstaking work and international coordination. It changed the way the Justice Department interacts with families of crime victims. Here's what Kara Weeps says about that. We have kept this on the forefront of six administrations. And it goes to show we don't forget. Our government doesn't forget, and they hold people accountable. And it sends a very strong message. That's NPR Carrie Johnson reporting. Thank you, Carrie. The idea of buy now, pay later is changing how we shop. Companies like Affirm and Klarna let people pay for almost anything in installments, and it's having a big impact on holiday shopping. So what's the catch? NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Think of it as an instant loan you can get for just a single shirt or a blender. Buy now, pay later is possibly the biggest trend of this holiday shopping season. I'm looking at that uh, for a little something for my sister, my mother. Elmi Escalante from Southern California first tried Buy Now, Pay Later during the pandemic to buy really fancy lounge pants. Instead of $140 up front, she paid four installments of $35 each, spread over six weeks. If you haven't done it, that's typically how it works. At online checkout, you choose one of these companies like Afterpay or Sezzle, and they basically front your whole bill. You pay down a quarter, that first installment, and set auto payments for the rest. No interest, no credit history required. 
Escalante became a strong convert. If a retailer doesn't offer that option, I don't shop with them. This sentiment is spreading fast. Between 2019 and 2021, the number of Buy Now, Pay Later loans grew almost tenfold. This month, one survey found twice as many people doing it than they did just in August. For many people, like Andy Arias from Los Angeles, it's a way to avoid credit card debt. I wanted to keep my credit score as intact as I could in case of a real emergency. A short buy now, pay later loan usually doesn't ping your credit score as long as you pay on time. And so far, the vast majority of people do. Buy now, pay later has become a groundbreaking new option for people with no credit history or with bad credit, a way to spread a big purchase over time without rolling over a credit card balance that wallops you with huge interest. The big concern? They do make it incredibly easy and tempting to make purchases. And if, if, if gone unchecked, it can be a little bit addicting, you know? It's an easy mind trick. I buy an $80 sweater today, but 60 of those dollars are a future Alina problem. And here's the thing. Stores actually pay these financial companies to offer buy now, pay later. Now, why would they do that? At Harvard Business School, Marco DiMaggio and Emily Williams dug into the central question about buy now, pay later. Is it pushing people to overspend? That must be the case, right? Because the merchants are paying very high fees. DiMaggio says typically retailers pay around 2% for credit card companies to process transactions, but they pay about 8% to buy now, pay later providers, four times as much. And financially, that would only make sense if BNPL encouraged people to buy more. DiMaggio and Williams found not only do these borrowers spend more on average, they specifically shop more. Williams says, imagine you have $100 to spend on a shirt. Buy Now Pay Later lets you put down a quarter of that, 25 bucks. So I've got this additional $75 and it's, you know, still in my shopping mental account. So I kind of, maybe I get the tie, maybe I get some socks, you know. Really what I've ended up doing is kind of just spent $175 on shirts. And then you've got to keep track of all the upcoming payments. They are automatically deducted from your bank account, so overdraft fees are a common issue. Now, more people are starting to do another financially perilous thing, putting buy now, pay later loans on their credit cards. Paying for credit with higher interest credit that you still owe. People are ordering food delivery with buy now, pay later. They're buying gas and groceries. Back in the spring, I did purchase a flight into London. Andy Arias made a last minute decision to attend a wedding thanks to 12 installments of about 120 bucks. Feeling kind of weird flying in a seat he hadn't technically paid for yet. This holiday season, he is staying vigilant, limiting buy now, pay later to some big ticket gifts for his nephews. Can't say what they are yet. Let's keep the surprise. I'm trying to make sure that, that my nephews have what they need. And at the same time, it's like, is this putting the, the carriage ahead of the horse? Would I have been able to do this, you know, without the buy now, pay later option? Aria says that is a conversation he has with himself often. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Private investors have been buying up mobile home parks across the country, threatening to raise fees or close the parks altogether. From member station WBUR in Boston, reporter Simone Rios takes us to a community near Cape Cod where residents decided to fight back. How's everything going? Good. Good. Good to see you. How's it been? 
Bob Costa is like an unofficial mayor of Royal Crest Mobile Home Park in Wareham. On a recent afternoon, he walked through the park, saluting everyone he saw with a big smile. It's all right. You behaving? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I'm does. too old to get yeah, in trouble. The park is like a small village, the kind of place where there are no fences and you know your neighbors. Costa moved here seven years ago after selling a five-bedroom house on Cape Cod. It cut his monthly housing costs in half. I just turned 78 years old, and um, my wife and I uh, found this place. We loved it. We loved the location, and our intent was to finish out our lives here. Then one day in March, the former cop got a disturbing letter. It said a firm in Arizona planned to buy the park for $12.1 million. Having that fear really was unsettling. I mean, some people say, well, don't be fearful. They, they can't force you to leave. Uh, yes, they can. It's a concern facing park residents across the country, as large investors take over from the mom-and-pop owners residents know. People who own mobile homes rent the land underneath, meaning what's often their most valuable asset, their home, is vulnerable to the whims of park owners. It's a fad right now. It's sexy real estate. That's Megan Haggerty, a New York real estate investor and broker. She says the parks offer stability even during down economies. The one sure thing is that there will still be a demand for affordable housing. I'm on the phone every day with family offices, investment firms who are looking to break into the industry. But residents say investors often raise rents, skimp on maintenance, and even clear out parks for new development. Sandy Overlock heads the Manufactured Home Federation of Massachusetts. Their whole thing is just for an investment to earn money. And once they've earned enough of what they want and they've paid their investors or if their investors want more, they try to sell them. But in Massachusetts and a handful of other states, there are laws that give residents the first shot at buying a park before it's sold. At Royal Crest, that meant the residents needed to come up with nearly $80,000 per household. It seemed impossible, but they knew they had to try. They discovered Rock USA, a national nonprofit that helps tenants buy their parks. The residents would also have to take on the extra work of managing a co-op, and there was a local nonprofit called the Cooperative Development Institute to help with that. Nine in ten residents approved the plan to purchase, and earlier this fall, they celebrated their closing. On behalf of the Royal Crest Association, we call this an official opening. The people of Royal Crest packed into their community center, hugging and helping themselves to big platters of food. My question is, how does it feel to beat a billion-dollar industry. Yeah. Rachel LaRue was at the party with her 90-year-old mother, who's lived here since the mid-1970s. LaRue says the purchase means her family will never have to worry about being forced to move. I get teary-eyed. I'm so excited that this happened for us. You know, everything fell into place. In recent years, nearly a quarter of mobile home park sales across the country have been to institutional investors, and it's forcing residents to decide whether to let that happen or band together and buy the land under their homes. For NPR News, I'm Simone Rios in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 32 degrees in Boston at 549. Coming up on All Things Considered, military members and their families are contending with high inflation and housing costs. That's just ahead here on WBUR.
This is good in the short term for workers because they're seeing good opportunities and good wage growth, but it's potentially bad for them in the longer term because they're combating these very rapidly rising prices, and there are a lot of reasons to think that this economy is going to have to slow down in order for inflation to moderate, and that could be a very painful process for American employees. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. The Patriots will take on the Cardinals tonight out in Arizona. The Celtics are in L.A. to take on the Clippers. That's a late start for that game. Bruins are off tonight. They'll host the Islanders tomorrow at the Garden. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny and a tad warmer on Thursday. The high, 43. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Many Americans are dealing with high inflation and expensive housing costs, including service members and their families. For those who've had to move to new posts recently, it's been especially tough. St. Louis Public Radio's Eric Schmidt has the story. Lisa Karoma is no stranger to moving with her husband, who's in the Army. Their family has relocated four other times, but their most recent move in 2021 was too much. This was the worst move I've ever experienced. Karoma's husband received orders last fall that his station was changing from Camp Humphreys in South Korea to Fort Carson in Colorado Springs. I was just like, is it because we were coming from overseas? No, no, that's not it. It was just because... The conditions in America, I feel like what we were walking into, we just were ill-prepared for. Karoma says housing on post at Fort Carson was full, and they had to stay at a hotel while they searched for a permanent place to live. She says it took about a month to find suitable housing. We were in a rush at this point because we're racking up hotel bills and breakfast, lunch, and dinner because you're in a hotel for a family of five. So we're like, whatever it is, we'll take it. But they made compromises. Karoma says the rental property where she's now living costs more than the allowance her husband receives from the Army each month for housing. All in all, she estimates her family spent about $10,000 out of pocket on the move. Had I known that, we would have prepared better. We're using credit cards, which we still haven't caught up on those bills. So we're chipping at that. Karoma's experience moving in the past year is hardly unique. A September survey from Blue Star Families found military families are spending more time and more money to find a place to live when they change duty stations. Kimberly Gold is one of the study's authors. She says moving for a reassignment is already a challenge that military families embrace. But to now hear that military families are using the words dismal and nightmare as a recurring theme, it it bothers me. It bothers me so much. About half of the 2,200 families surveyed reported spending more than 20 days in temporary housing. The Defense Department only covers 14 of those days. Once they find a place to live, families reported spending an average $336 per month more than the military housing allowance on just rent or a mortgage, not including utilities. When you're spending more money on one thing, you have less money for anything else. Chesare Galvin directs justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion for armed forces housing advocates. She says challenges with housing costs can cascade and hit other parts of a military family's budget, like food. Which doesn't just affect 
the families, but then it turns around and affects the military. Because if you're worried about whether or not your kids got to eat this morning, you're not focusing on your job. The Defense Department did issue a temporary increase to the military's basic allowance for housing this September. In some markets where rents have ballooned. But those only apply in 28 places across the country. Colorado Springs, where Lisa Caroma's family lives, isn't one of them. She says the strain from this move has her asking her husband if he can retire from the Army sometime soon. I never want to do this again. I'm tapping on his back every day. When? When are you getting out? I hate it. Karoma says she and her husband deeply appreciate what the military has afforded their family, and they don't necessarily want him to leave. But she says they need more support from the Army for it to make sense. For NPR News, I'm Eric Schmid. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. It tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from a woman named Jennifer. We're only using her first name to protect her privacy. As a kid, Jennifer felt like she never quite fit in. Her classmates made fun of her for being socially awkward and wearing unfashionable clothes. Going to school felt like torture, but the bullying escalated to a whole new level in seventh grade when a group of three girls began singling her out almost every day after class. I had no defense against any of this. Whatever insult they said to me, I just said right back to them. So they would say, you're stupid. And I'd say, no, you're stupid. And I'd say, you're ugly. And I'd say, no, you're ugly. The school year was terrible. I was miserable. My grades were terrible. I cried most days on the way home from school trying to get myself together so my mother wouldn't know what was going on. In the summer between 7th and 8th grade, the ringleader of this gang of girls was tragically killed in a car accident. Although I had never wished anything like that on any of them, I, I really just had wanted them to stop picking on me, I did hold out some hope that this might mean that eighth grade could be different. And that hope lasted about two days into the new school year. When I discovered that the gang of girls was still together, they had a new ringleader. And whenever they could get free, they would come find me as always and torment me as always. And I was miserable again. Until about six weeks into the school year, when I was changing after gym class, I'd waited till all the other kids were gone so that I could change in private. When I hear a voice and I look up and there was the new ringleader standing there looking angry. She said, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I was terrified. I'd never spoken to her before. And she said, my girls tell me that you've been insulting them. And I was just so surprised at the injustice of it. And I just began to cry. And she said, what are you crying about? And that just made it worse. And when it got that bad, the whole story just tumbled out of me and how these girls had tormented me all the way through seventh grade and how no insult I had ever thrown at them was anything they hadn't said to me 10 seconds before. And then I hear her say, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I'll tell them to stop. And when I looked up, she was gone. And those girls never spoke to me again. I approached the world very differently than I would have had this not happened. I take the risk of trusting other people more often than I would have. And I've had people tell me how much my gestures meant to them, all things that I did because 
my unsung hero gave me a view of humanity I had never had before. And if I could tell her about that today, I would tell her that she didn't just change my life, though she did. She changed the whole world. Jennifer now lives and works in Maryland. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Searchlight Pictures with Empire of Light, a new film by Sam Mendez starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about the power of human connection during a time of great change. Now playing in select theaters. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 32 degrees in Boston at just a minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a retired FBI agent about the investigation into the 1988 Lockerbie bombing that has finally led to a suspect being charged. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The drought in Somalia immediately means that there's Uh, scarcity of food at the household level. Somalia is experiencing its worst drought in decades. One aid group says nearly two million children are suffering from malnutrition and that many will die. It's Monday, December 12th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, a Massachusetts congressman is just back from Ukraine. What he says leaders in the war-torn country are looking for from the U.S. What they needed a few months ago is not what they need today. Today, they're focused on getting missile defenses, air defenses. And the new website, areyoupressworthy.com, calculates press value to expose the bias known as missing white woman syndrome. Marketplace is up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01, now this news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Time is running out for Congress to pass legislation that would avert a government shutdown. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Democrats and Republicans continue to argue over details of a roughly $1.5 trillion funding plan that would keep federal agencies operating through the next fiscal year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says lawmakers should be prepared to vote on a one-week continuing resolution to give negotiators more time to work out a final agreement. Both sides are going to have to give in order to get it done. But it'll be worth it if it means doing right by our veterans, our service members in uniforms, our kids, their families. That's what's at stake here. Democrats and Republicans have reached an agreement on roughly $850 billion in defense funding, but remain far apart on non-defense spending. Both sides have until Friday to either reach a final budget agreement or pass a short-term measure to keep the government funded at current levels. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian officials say the country needs assistance totaling at least a billion dollars to return its electric grid and centralized heating system to normal operations. That's according to the country's prime minister. In an address to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Ukraine's prime minister said recent Russian airstrikes have damaged half of the country's key infrastructure facilities. Energy officials have been working to restore the grid to the Black Sea city of Odessa. The U.S. Department of Energy is approving a $2.5 billion loan to an electric vehicle battery maker to build manufacturing plants in the U.S. Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports. Ultium Cells is a joint venture between General Motors and LG. The funding will help the company build three new EV battery manufacturing plants. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm says the plants will be built in Tennessee, Ohio, and Michigan. This announcement alone will help to create 6,000 construction jobs and over 5,000 new operations jobs, high-quality operation jobs, when these three factories are at full capacity. Granholm says it's the first federal loan given out under the Advanced Technology Vehicles Manufacturing Program. She says that program got a $40 billion boost through the Inflation Reduction Act. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. The former CEO of the failed cryptocurrency firm FTX will testify before a congressional committee tomorrow. It's his first appearance under oath since the company filed for bankruptcy roughly a month ago. Sam Bankman-Fried is scheduled to testify before the House Financial Services Committee, along with the company's current CEO, John Ray III. Bankman-Fried has done several media interviews but has not publicly testified about what happened. He's expected to appear remotely from the Bahamas. Stocks gain ground today, the Dow up 528 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA marked its biggest expansion in decades this morning with the opening of five new Green Line stations in Somerville and Medford. The first trolley rolled out of Tufts Station before 5 a.m. this morning as a cheering crowd looked on. As WBUR's Laura Craigle reports, some Massachusetts leaders are already looking ahead to future projects. At a ribbon-cutting ceremony, Senator Elizabeth Warren thanked local, state, and federal partners for making the Medford extension a reality, despite years of delays and funding challenges. She also urged state and local officials to apply for newly available federal funding to help the T continue to grow. Extending the Green Line is great, but we need a lot more extensions, and we can't wait two decades for every single one of them to come online. 
Warren said expanding public transit is key to housing, environmental, and racial justice around the region. She specifically called for doubling commuter rail locations, building out bike lanes, and launching east-west rail service. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Laura Craigle. A Pittsfield man has been sentenced to prison for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 38-year-old Troy Sargent was sentenced to 14 months in prison today on charges of assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers during the breach that preceded the certification of votes from the 2020 election. Sargent pleaded guilty to the charges back in June. He was also ordered to complete two years of supervised release and pay $500 restitution. Some Boston City Councilors are expressing support for expanding voting rights to immigrants who are not U.S. citizens. The Council says there are about 40,000 immigrants living in Boston with legal status. The Council is considering a measure that would allow those residents to vote in city elections. Councilor Kendra Lara sponsored the effort and spoke at a hearing today on the topic. Now, I'm one of those people that believes that everyone should have a say in the decisions that impact their daily lives. But if someone here or someone who is watching us on Zoom are one of the folks that believe that voting is a privilege, uh, then I'm here to tell you all that our neighbors have more than earned that privilege. More than a dozen cities across the country allow non-citizens to vote. Last month, the council backed a similar measure expanding voting to people ages 16 and 17. The state has nearly finished sending $2.7 billion in refunds to more than 3 million taxpayers. An Office of Administration and Finance spokesperson said that everyone eligible who filed their 2021 taxes by the end of October should have received either a paper check or direct deposit by now. These payouts were issued as part of a law that requires the state government to send refunds to residents in the case of an excessive tax revenue surplus. Sports, the Patriots take on the Cardinals tonight in Arizona. Celtics are in L.A. to take on the Clippers. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Right now it's 31 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The afternoon of December 21st, 1988, reports were just emerging of widespread wreckage raining down on the town of Lockerbie, Scotland, fallout from the midair explosion of a passenger plane. We heard a tremendous shudder on the ground as though it was an earthquake. And then this enormous ball of flame. It was just an inferno and they could have known nothing about it. The whole sky lit up and it was virtually raining fire, liquid fire. Investigators later determined a bomb had blown Pan Am Flight 103 out of the sky, killing 270 people, including 190 Americans. The magnitude of that crash never really hit home to most people in the United States. I don't know that it hit home to most people in the FBI. Retired FBI Special Agent Dick Marquise initially led the U.S. investigation. He's talking there in an FBI documentary. And today, with the alleged bomb maker behind the attack appearing before a U.S. court, we wanted to get his perspective on this moment. Dick Marquise, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Good afternoon. So let's start with what you said there in that documentary about the magnitude of this crash. The crime scene was huge, 845 square miles. So can you tell us about the scope of the investigation that followed? Well, clearly this uh, crime occurred over Scotland and it was 4,000 miles from the uh, shores of the United States. So 
it really, as I said in that piece, I'm not sure if people in the United States focused on it the way we did after 9-11. Uh, this investigation, 1988 to 1991, uh, encompassed uh, dozens of countries, uh, hundreds of police officers, intelligence agents, uh, the collection of the evidence over 845 square miles. It was the most significant crime scene and investigation in history up to that point. Hmm. You also said that you weren't sure that the magnitude of the crash hit home even to most people in the FBI. What did you mean by that? Well, the fact that it took place literally 4,000 miles from our shores, even though it was an American carrier, 190 Americans, uh, the United States was the target of that attack. The fact that it occurred uh, five time zones away from us at night, uh, it didn't hit home the way uh, Oklahoma City, the way that September 11th, and the various terrorist crimes that we've seen in the United States since 1988. And I'm not sure because the media coverage disappeared, mostly in the United States, very quickly. And it fell out of the consciousness of most people because it also took um, approximately three years before we had publicly identified uh, who was responsible for this. Hmm. Did the Lockerbie bombing and the investigation that followed change the way that terrorism was investigated and crimes of this sort were prosecuted? Well, it, it did. Certainly the, the laws that, uh, that prohibited this type of activity were not even passed in the United States until 1986. That made it a law for, uh, made it against the law for someone abroad to kill an American during the course of a terrorist attack. Prior to that, someone could do it with impunity, get away with it, and they couldn't be prosecuted. But this case brought uh, police and intelligence agencies together in an unprecedented way to collect information, share information, and uh, eventually bring people to justice at first the time in a court sitting in the Netherlands, a Scottish court sitting in the Netherlands in uh, 2000. As we mentioned, you initially led the U.S. investigation. So I'm curious, um, all these years later, do you still have personal connections with families of the victims? And I wonder, are there any promises you made to them back then that you still remember today? The only promise I ever made in one uh, public comments that I made to them was that we were going to do everything we could to bring justice. And people had asked about closure. I don't know that you ever get closure from something like this, but I promised that we would do everything we could to bring those responsible to justice. And I was very disappointed uh, years ago when all we brought to court the first time were two people. And I'm hoping that uh, with Mr. Massoud coming into the United States, that he will provide that additional data, additional information that will allow investigators to focus in on other people who may still be alive that were responsible for this attack. Are you still in touch with any families of the victims that you met back then? I am. I, uh, I, 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 every year I go to Arlington. I'll be going again next week uh, on December 21st at 1.30, Arlington Cemetery. There's an annual commemorative uh, event that I have attended most years uh, since that memorial was erected in the mid-1990s. I still stay in touch with some of those folks. We've got about a minute left with you, and I'd like to ask you personally, what does this day mean to you after nearly 34 years to see one of the chief suspects of this bombing in court in the U.S.? I, I think it 
is significant. And, and that's just so it's not for me. It's for those people who lost loved ones on that airplane. It's for Americans to finally see somebody in a U.S. court that we believe was responsible for killing their loved one. And it is a it, it's a good feeling for that. And I hope that uh, these families can walk away uh, getting additional information that will allow them and you never put it behind you, but yeah. allow them to maybe sleep better at night. That's retired FBI Special Agent Dick Marquise, who led the American investigation into the 1988 Pan Am Flight 103 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Somalia is experiencing its worst drought in decades. The UN warns that in the coming months, nearly half the country could be in a critical food crisis with famine conditions in parts of Somalia. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Mogadishu. And Jason, tell us about what you've seen. How bad is the food situation right now? The food situation is pretty bad here. Technically, under the UN's guidance and the way that they categorize different types of food crises. It has not yet reached a famine state, but there are a lot of people without food. There are millions of people without food. And the concern is what's going to happen in the coming year. Already, Somalia has had four rainy seasons in a row that have failed. And A groups are really worried about what's going to happen if the rainfall levels don't increase at some point this coming year in 2023. You know, Recently, they've had hundreds of thousands of people whose crops have failed, whose livestock have died, and these people have left their rural homes and they've moved to these IDP camps, these internally displaced persons camps around Mogadishu, uh, around other cities and in, in larger towns, because these are the only places that they can currently get access to international food supplies from, from aid groups. And we are seeing children who are severely malnourished right now, even though they are not yet at this you know, so-called famine state. And we are seeing some kids who are dying due to this crisis. I know you've been out to meet some of them. Let's listen to your reporting. At the Benadir Hospital in Mogadishu, two-year-old Dikle Ibrahim has gotten so weak from malnutrition that he no longer even has the strength to swallow. His shoulders and rib cage protrude against his skin. His eyes are sunk deep into their sockets. For lung starvation, then he lost his muscles, his fats. So he, ca- he cannot uh, swallow properly. That's Dr. Mohamed Yassin Hiri, one of the physicians on the malnutrition intensive care unit at the hospital. His age is two years old and his weight is 5.4. 5.4 kilograms or just under 12 pounds. Dr. Hiri says Dikle should weigh at least twice that amount. His mother, Moral, sits beside him on the bed and fans her son with her shawl. Moral says Dikle came down with diarrhea nearly a month ago and then progressively grew thinner and thinner. Finally, she made the 60-mile journey from her village to the capital, Mogadishu, she says, to seek help. Dr. Hiri says more and more cases like Dikle are showing up at this hospital. For the last six months, the, the situation has been dramatically increased. The cases were, we admitted more cases. Now, but this year, the cases has been increased. So long as the children don't have other complications, like, for instance, cholera or measles, Dr. Hiri says the malnourished kids respond well to treatment. 
In addition to the inpatient ICU beds at Benadir Hospital, many more children are treated at an outpatient nutrition clinic. The clinic provides children with a high-calorie peanut paste supplement called Plumpy Nut, which can help them regain weight quickly. As families struggle to afford food, they often feed their children less or give them meals that are little more than a watery stew. The drought in Somalia immediately means that there's uh, scarcity of food at the household level. Victor Chinyama, a spokesperson for UNICEF in Mogadishu, says the ongoing drought in Somalia has led to severe shortages of food across the country, and it's expected to get worse in the coming months. In fact, at the moment, we're looking at maybe 1.8 million children suffering from acute malnutrition, and about half a million of these are in danger of dying because they have uh, a more severe form of malnutrition called wasting. Adding to the food crisis in Somalia, the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab is blocking international relief efforts in areas it controls. The recent crop failures, combined with battles between the government and Al-Shabaab, have forced hundreds of thousands of Somalis to seek food and basic shelter in internally displaced persons camps. Chinyama says Somalia also appears to be getting battered by climate change, which is making these droughts more frequent. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And we'll have more of Jason's reporting from Somalia later this week. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown, 31 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, I'll have a conversation with Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton about his trip last week to Ukraine. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up 1.5% at 34,005. The S&P was up one and a four-tenths of a percent to close at 3991. And the Nasdaq was up one and a quarter percent to end the day at 11,144. In other business news, gasoline prices are falling across the country, but the relief has been muted here in Massachusetts. A AAA survey show 34 states have gas prices lower than this time last year. Massachusetts is not among them. The average statewide price in Massachusetts fell 12 cents in the past week to $3.54 a gallon. That's still 14 cents a gallon higher than this time last year. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. Learn more at ceres.org/slash WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR Events newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. 
In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 25 degrees. Sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. The highs will be around 37. Partly sunny and a tad warmer on Thursday. The highs will be around 43 degrees. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales Fuss Family Health Initiative, a philanthropic and community service initiative dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis facing youth in under-resourced communities by raising awareness, reducing stigmas, and supporting the many young people who feel alone as they grapple with mental health challenges. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton has returned from a visit to Ukraine. He was part of a congressional delegation that met with U.S. and Ukrainian officials in Kiev, as well as U.S. troops deployed in Poland. Congressman Moulton joins us now to discuss the visit. Welcome, Congressman, to WBUR's All Things Considered. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, This was your second visit to Ukraine. You were there just about a year ago before the war started. Why did you decide that it's important to visit Ukraine at this moment in time? I think Ukraine is an incredibly important U.S. ally. But I went there in December of last year, exactly a year ago, at a time when a lot of people weren't taking the threat of Russia's invasion seriously. And I came back and and wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how we weren't doing enough to prevent a war with Russia. We weren't doing enough to deter Putin. We were just talking about a response. Of course, sadly, uh, that proved quite accurate. And A couple months later, Putin invaded. They're now about eight months into the war. And I'll tell you, it's remarkable how little has changed in the capital city. By that, I mean, despite the horrific war that Vladimir Putin has unleashed on this country, an illegal and completely unnecessary war that's killing thousands and thousands of people, the Ukrainians are so remarkably resilient that that Kyiv felt much the same as it did a year ago. Mm -hmm. What were the main things that you took away from from this visit from Kyiv, other than the fact that uh, they're still living their lives there? Well, they're living their lives, but they have to win this war. It's obvious that right now there's just no negotiating space between the Ukrainians and Russia. Ukraine wants its country back, and they certainly deserve to have it back. Russia doesn't seem willing to budge. So it's important that we get Ukraine what they need to win this war. But their requests change over time. And what they needed a few months ago is not what they need today. Today, they're focused on getting missile defenses, uh, air defenses, to stop this onslaught of Russian attacks against their energy infrastructure. Uh, Putin's trying to use winter as a weapon and freeze the Ukrainians to death over the winter months. They've got to shoot those missiles out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you anticipate my next question about the, about the winter. It's getting more intense there in Ukraine. Uh, how is the energy infrastructure holding up there? And, and can it ensure that Ukrainians do not freeze to death? Their energy infrastructure is fragile, uh, in part because it's all based on Soviet technology. So the immediate focus is getting the replacement old Soviet parts to plug back in the, the pieces that Putin has knocked out. In the long run, though, we talked about how important it is that they transition their power grid to a Western system, not only because it will be more resilient and reliable, but because it will tie Ukraine in with the West. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the United States approach to its support for Ukraine needs to change based on anything you, you saw on this visit? Or are we doing all the right things in your view? I think that for the longest time in this war, we've been doing all the right things, sometimes a little bit late. 
And I think there's still more that we can do to accelerate the delivery of supplies, both humanitarian and military, uh, to the Ukrainians. The number one thing we need to do is accelerate the delivery of air defense systems like the Patriot missile. We've got to get that to them as quickly as they can, because every day that goes by where Putin is able to launch more attacks on their energy infrastructure, it threatens to literally freeze Ukrainians to death over the winter. The second thing we need to do is really focus on what they need to win this as quickly as possible, to push Russia back to a point where they're willing to negotiate on more reasonable terms. Uh, ultimately, we need to ensure the strategic defeat of Vladimir Putin so that he doesn't go anywhere next. Putin will not stop on his own. And if he doesn't get stopped in Ukraine, he could well go to a NATO country next. That means U.S. troops would have to be involved. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks for speaking with WBUR's All Things Considered. Thank you. It's good to be back. If you went missing, how much news coverage do you think you would get? The Columbia Journalism Review released a new database tool called Are You Pressworthy? It calculates the number of stories your disappearance would get based on certain factors like your age, race, gender, and geographic location. The new tool shows us how racial bias continues to affect media coverage. NPR's Jonathan Franklin has the story. Thousands of people are reported missing in the U.S. each year. And while not every missing person case would get huge media attention, the urge to locate them is always the main priority. But when it comes to missing person cases involving people of color, that same media attention is often non-existent. Why not the same media attention when people of color go missing? Well, the answer actually has a name. Missing white woman syndrome. The phrase, coined by the late journalist Glenn Eiffel, calls out the media's fascination with covering attractive, middle-class-looking white women in comparison to missing persons of color. I call it the missing white woman syndrome. (laughs) If there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. This so-called media phenomenon never really sat right with Kyle Pope, the editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. Everybody talks about it occasionally. Um, Everybody says we got to do something about it. And nothing happened. To start that conversation on how we should cover stories involving missing people, the Columbia Journalism Review launched a new tool that allows you to openly share your press value with the world if you were to go missing. The tool estimates that younger white women would get increasingly more news coverage than other racial groups, such as Black, Latino, and Indigenous people. And the implications of this are literally life and death. The amount of media coverage you get immediately after you go missing has a direct result on what happens to your case. It's no secret that missing person cases across the U.S. are becoming more common. More than 600,000 people go missing in the U.S. each year, and that's according to data from the National Crime Information Center. And research shows that in 2021 alone, nearly 521,000 people were reported missing, with 40% of those cases being missing persons of color. But sadly, 38% of people who go missing in the U.S. are Black, which is double the U.S. Black population of about 14%. I will say this. We are not naive to believe that every missing person's case will get national media coverage. That's Natalie Wilson, the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing awareness to the cases of missing persons of color. She says that the organization not only brings awareness to missing Black people, but goes above and beyond by helping families in the search for their missing loved one. What we're trying to do is to change that narrative to show that our missing are, they're important too. Loved ones like the family of Daniel Robinson are also on that same mission, bringing awareness to Daniel's sudden disappearance nearly 18 months ago. 
Daniel's father, David, says that when it came to his son, a black man, it was extremely difficult to get any sort of media attention about his disappearance. Media wasn't really at the time reaching back out, uh, so I had to keep pressing and pressing, but it took a lot of hard work. In the end, Wilson says that both media and everyday people have a responsibility to address this issue. We all have a responsibility to not only stand up for ourselves, but to raise awareness about this issue. It's really a pandemic that's affecting our community. Jonathan Franklin, NPR News. Nearly 150,000 people in the tech industry have been laid off this year. And for some, losing a job could also mean losing the life they've built in the United States. What the tech downturn means for immigrants who work in the industry and for the broader U.S. economy. That's this afternoon on our daily news podcast, Consider This, from NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. Give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. HuntingtonTheater.org slash gifts.